in the name of God, Creator, Redeemer, and Giver of all life. Amen. Please be seated. Today's Gospel reading, the story of the Good Samaritan, is one that you will have heard many sermons on. Perhaps you have studied it in Bible class or home group. Now, if you're new to Christianity and you haven't heard many sermons or sat through many studies on the parable of the Good Samaritan, don't worry because you will. <laughs> the reason for this is that this story is so, so rich in content. Content that is found in the characters, their actions, their motivations. There's content found in the social and religious context that each of these characters occupies in the culture of Jesus' time. When we examine the actions of the people in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we get to uncover countless observations that apply directly to our own lives, our own circumstances, our own privilege, and our own indifference. We can read this parable and find ourselves in every role. We can read this parable and assign others in our lives, or in the public eye, to every role. The victim, the priest, the Levite, the Samaritan, the innkeeper, the donkey. The donkey. <laughs> we recognize them all, and we can read this parable and feel like Jesus asks us directly, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And like the lawyer in parable, we can feel that knowing the right answer condemns us for our own lack of mercy. In Luke's Gospel, there's an ongoing thread that portrays through his action and his teaching Jesus as the manifestation of God's compassion for the world. And the word that we see translated into compassion in English in these instances is often the Greek word shpliknoi. Sometimes it's shpliknismai, which is pointless to know. But anyway, the point is, is that shplak, that bit, the root word, that refers to the gut, to the bowels. And when it's used figuratively like this, it refers to a visceral gut-wrenching compassion. This is not some kind of compassion that's characterised by sympathy or kind-heartedness. It's visceral, it's in here. And it's compassion that is characterised by horror and outrage. It's compassion that demands some action and response. This is the compassion of God that is translated in the Song of Zechariah, the beginning of this gospel, to tender mercy. It's that kind of compassion that causes, that means that God causes the dawn from on high to break upon us and to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. It is this kind of compassion that moves Jesus when he sees the widow of Nain burying her only son. When Jesus sees her, he is moved with compassion and he says to her, 
do not cry. And he approaches the beer in Esther. Beer is stopped. He says, young man, I say to you, rise. And the kid sits up and begins to speak. And Jesus gives him to his mother. That's the compassion. And it's this visceral, gut-wrenching compassion that is characterised by horror and outrage that causes the Samaritan in today's story to respond. When he sees him, he is moved with compassion and he goes to him and he bandages his wounds and treats them with oil and wine. He puts them on his own animal and takes them to an inn to take care of him. It's that kind of compassion, a compassion that drives a response Question, do you think that the priest and the Levite who passed on the other side were without compassion? To feel nothing upon seeing someone on the side of the road stripped, beaten and lying half dead is to display an extraordinary degree of attachment, an extraordinary degree of self-absorption. But that's not the extraordinary behaviour that Jesus is seeking to highlight in this parable. The lawyer that asks the question, and the priest and the Levite in the story, they know God's laws. They know God's expectation of compassion and mercy. They know God's expectation of love and care for the other. Here is a coffee question for when we go and have a cup of coffee over in the garden room afterwards. At your table, somebody needs to throw out this question, okay? Here it is. Why didn't the priest and Levite stop? Because then people can share what they remember from all the sermons they've heard about the Good Samaritan. And you can share about ritual uncleanliness, the time of day, the identity of the victim. Maybe they thought he was dead, the risk of being robbed themselves. All that stuff that you've absorbed over the years. Share it, over coffee. But I'll tell you what, the priest and the Levite, they saw and they respond out of compassion because that's the human response. They said, oh my gosh, there is a beaten naked, half-dead guy on the side of the road over there. Because that's the human response. And then the next bit of the human response is, what do I do? And it's a result of that evaluation that they pass on the other side. And there's nothing more extraordinary about that. What is extraordinary is what the Samaritan does. To Jesus' listeners, it's extraordinary because of who he is, and it's extraordinary in the magnitude of the response. To Jewish listeners, the priest and the Levite are the archetypes of those who know God's law. And the Samaritan is the archetype of those who do not. That can be another coffee discussion after you've talked about why they didn't stop. You can talk about why were the Jews so anti-Samaritan? Okay? You've got it. They're on the table sometime. Okay? So anyway, for those listening in Jesus' time, for the hero of the story to be a Samaritan in contrast to the priest and the Levite, that's extraordinary. But then the 
was the magnitude of the response. The Samaritan takes all the risks that the priest and the Levite would not. He stops. He touches. He cleans the wounds. He uses his own animal. He takes the injured man to an inn. He interrupts his own trip for a day. Pays the equivalent of two days' wages to accommodate the injured man and himself and promises more cash to ensure that his recovery continues at that place. Amazing. It's extraordinary. Today's reading ends with Jesus asking the lawyer whose question was asked to test him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the lawyer goes, having heard that story, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, it's in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 8, where Jesus says, my brother, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. It's in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11, where Jesus says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And it's in Luke chapter 6 where Jesus says, I will show you what someone is like who comes to me, hears my words and acts on them. That is one like a man building a house who dug deeply and laid the foundations on rock. You see, hearing the word and doing something about it is also a theme in Luke's gospel. Compassion alone is not enough. Action, response, driven by our compassion is expected. And the cost of that response is also highlighted in this gospel. To act in mercy requires sacrifice. In this story, there is the sacrifice of time, there's financial cost, there's physical risk. All these are part of the Samaritan's act of mercy. So then, it seems as we read this parable, the challenge is quite clear. Be like the Samaritan. But where do we get the courage? Where do we get the courage from to act on the prompting of that compassion? Now the Gospel of Luke is seen by most scholars to be a two-volume thing. The, the, the Gospel that we been reading out of today in the book of Acts, both written by the same author, and sometimes Luke Acts is, Luke Act, Luke Acts is characterized as being theocentric rather than Christocentric. It's not just about Jesus, and the reason why that is is because in Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit is active throughout, and obviously active throughout um, the narrative. In Luke's gospel, the Holy Spirit is right up front with Zechariah. The Holy Spirit is with Mary. The Holy Spirit is with Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mum. The Holy Spirit is with John the Baptist. The Holy Spirit descends on Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit accompanies Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days. Jesus promises the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come and then in Acts it comes in power and it transforms the disciples. That's what goes on in Acts with the, in Luke Acts with the Holy Spirit. So then it's pretty obvious that some of the answer to our questioning of how can I go and do likewise, some of the answer's got to be the Holy Spirit. Because it supports our action and prompts our response. 
But the other part of our answer must be our aspiration to go and do likewise. Because as Christians we recognise in the life and teaching of Jesus that we are called to live lives that offer more, more love, more care, more peace and more justice. And we recognise that to be more of those things requires an ongoing change in us. And that like any change in us that we aspire to, First, we must want to be different. We must want that change. And like any change we aspire to, we know that transformation occurs in small, incremental steps that are taken with the support, encouragement, and encouragement of others. We are the church. And together, we aspire to go and do likewise. Because it's together that we learn who we are. It's together that we learn we are forgiven and that we are therefore free to forgive others. It is church, as church, that Jesus calls us to come together and to share this Eucharistic meal, his meal, regularly, to remind us of who and whose we are. Because that's actually what we're trying to do together here in the church. Together we try to go and do like